This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, we will be talking with Sharon Hewitt-Rollett, and we will be talking about her book, The Source and Significance of Coincidence, a hard look at the astonishing evidence. Now, the term coincidence is right there in the title of her book, but it covers so much more than that. And we make a big effort to dig really deep and try to explore this mystery in a, in a very thoughtful and I'll also add a very personal way. Now, in the days leading up to this interview, uh, Sharon and I talked on Facebook and she sent me her book electronically. And I, and I looked at the page count and it was big. It's over 600 pages. And I realized that like I would... I would never be able to read the entire book before recording this interview. So I picked out things in the table of contents, things that I I thought were interesting for me especially, and I read as much as I could, but I certainly did not read the book in its entirety. Now, during the same time, Sharon had told me that she had read my first OWL book, and then I sent her my second and third books electronically, and she read both of them. And and I was really impressed, and, and I... I felt like a total slacker for not being able to read her book completely. And and during the few days just before we did the interview, we were asking each other questions using the Facebook chat box, and this comes up a few times in our conversation. So given that, she had read more about me than I had read about her. So I just put it right out there. I said, if you have any questions for me, go ahead and ask them. That'll be fine. And And she does as much during this interview. And these questions, I mean, her questions of me tie into her book and her own exploration of synchronicity and her ideas about both the source and the significance. This conversation was recorded on Friday, November 22nd, 2019. Please enjoy. Sharon, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Mike, I want to thank you so much for inviting me. It was such a surprise uh, to get your Facebook message, and I am so delighted to get to talk to you. Oh, good. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you, too. And so for the listeners, Sharon and I had a conversation just before we went online, and and I certainly am sort of lamenting that uh, uh, we might have to come and do a follow-up interview or something like that, but this should more correctly be about a 15-hour podcast, which we're going to boil down to one hour. I think both of us are on the same path and both of us have have done the same thing where we've collected an enormous amount of stories to make our case. And I guess the stories are one thing and the case is another thing altogether. So I think we're going to try to cover a little of both there. Mm-hmm. I guess the first question anyone would ask, how did you get into to studying coincidence or synchronicities? Well, I think the answer is probably similar to what a lot of people's answer is, which is my own personal coincidences and synchronicities, which in the beginning were just kind of small things. Probably all of us kind of have these little small coincidences that happen to us throughout our lives. But then at one point in my life, the coincidences got so strong and so insistent that I had to really start paying attention to them. And it was about, I guess it's four years ago now that I had a coincidence that was just so strong in my face and 
so improbable and so meaningful at the same time that I suddenly decided that I needed to devote myself to understanding what was going on here. Cause I really didn't understand the phenomenon at all. I just knew that something crazy was happening. And so I really spent uh, three years reading about this nonstop talking to people about um, coincidence and synchronicity. And that became the book that, um, that came out a few months ago. And, and what was that story? The story that, 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 that sort of shot you out of the canon, I guess. Let me put it that way. So, like I said, this happened about four years ago. Um, this was a, a really important um, time in my life. It was a really difficult time in my life. And my, I was dealing with um, kind of questions related to the country of France, um, where I used to live um, for over a period of years. I kind of lived between France and the United States. Um, and I just always had this very strong emotional connection to France. Um, as well as to a particular friend that I had there. And at this period in my life, I was living back in the United States and I had been here for a while, but something was just really kind of eating at me with relationship to France. And I, I was just kind of in turmoil trying to figure out, well, am I going to have some new connection to France? Trying to figure out my, my relationship to this person that I had, um, that I had known when I was living there. And it was, it was just a difficult time for, for various reasons, but particularly related to that issue. And so this one weekend, um, I met up with some friends in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and uh, we were in a state park, an area where we'd never been in Pennsylvania before. And so at one point, we had to go out and find a grocery store to get something to eat. So we're driving around. Um, I'm with this my one other friend in the car and we can't find a grocery store. So she eventually just asks her phone, find us the nearest grocery stores. And then she's, because she's driving the car, she hands her phone to me so that I can look at it and decide which of these stores we should actually go to. So she gives me the phone and it's showing a list of maybe four grocery stores there in Pennsylvania near where we are, but I want to see them on a map because it's just a list and I want to see where we are in relation to these stores. So I click the map button on the phone and it takes like a few seconds to load. It seems like it kind of takes a long time, but then finally a map comes up and it's showing me um, like there are four or five little, you know, pinpoints um, on the map and they are, all showing me French grocery stores. This The name of this French grocery store chain is Leclerc. So it's showing me four or five Leclercs. And each of them has a name of a different French town. I'm not sure where in France they are. I just I can recognize them as French town names. One of the, the towns stood out to me, the town of Carré, but I couldn't place it in France exactly. I was just like, well, this map is showing me towns in France. This is really strange. So I handed the phone back to my friend because I was a little bit weirded out by this uh, because I was so really obsessed with France at this point. Um, that was just constantly in my thoughts. And I, I just didn't know what to do with it. So I handed the phone back to my friend. She tapped another button and it started working perfectly normally, showing grocery stores in Pennsylvania again. We went to the grocery store. Everything was fine. Well, when I got home from this trip a couple of days later, I was still thinking about this, this crazy coincidence. Why had this phone shown me France? 
And so I decided to um, look up the town of Carré that I had remembered seeing on the map to see where it was in France. When the map loaded, I discovered that Carré was actually in the region of Brittany, which is the region that my friend that I had been thinking about was from as well. It's not the town where he lived or really very close to it, but it was in that region. As soon as I realized that it was showing me the region where he lived, I knew, and this kind of reminds me of some of your experiences, Mike, I knew at that moment that it must have been showing me the precise place where he was on that day. So this was like 10 o'clock at night. I was like, how could I figure out, you know, where he was on that day? I, I have, I haven't been in contact with him for several years. Um, I can't, you know, call him in the middle of the night. How am I going to figure this out? So I just decided to Google his name and the date that this thing had happened. And lo and behold, I get a page from his blog where he's listed four or five different dates for that year and events that he was going to be attending. The date that the coincidence happened was on the list and it had the name of a town, Kergloff, which I didn't know. So I Googled Kergloff and I got a map that showed that Kergloff was two miles from the center of Carré. So if on that day he was in Kergloff and he had asked his phone, what are the nearest grocery stores? He would have gotten the grocery store in Carré that I saw on my phone. It was like my friend's phone in Pennsylvania was showing me the map that should have been shown to my friend in France. And this sense of knowing. I mean, this is it. So I, one of the questions I ask folks who have these kind of experiences is, how would you rate your psychic skills? So I'm going to ask you that. How would you rate your psychic skills? I don't think my psychic skills are very good, actually. Well, um, well so what about that sense of knowing, that profound well, sense of knowing? Well, that, that does seem like one of the occasions on which I have okay, been more good, psychic. Good. Um, definitely. I, might, I mean, it, it's, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And it, it's, it's like there's this, I've felt it a handful of times, and it's like, it's concrete for me. Yeah, it's because a lot of times, because I read so much about psychic phenomena, you know, I'm constantly examining my own thoughts. And I'm like, well, is, you know, is this feeling that I have a psychic premonition or you know, all these different things? And I'm like, eh, probably not. But it had nothing of that flavor to it. It was just a feeling of absolute certainty <laughs> that this is how it was going to play out. Yeah. And, and this is, this is interwoven into this mystery. I think this intensely emotional and personal aspect to this. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think that I can overstate how, how personally meaningful this coincidence was to me. Like I, it, it would take me hours to try to explain the whole context of this, but, but my thoughts, that particular weekend when I was in the mountains with my friends were so focused on France and so focused on this particular person that it, it, if you, you know, if you understand that, you know, psychic connections exist, this was the moment in which a psychic connection ought to manifest itself through this kind of synchronicity. It, it was, it was, it was a climactic moment in my life. And the, and the really interesting thing 
is that actually that coincidence set off this whole slew of coincidences after it. So it was, as far as like statistics, it was the most impressive one of them. But there was a solid month after that of coincidences related to France and related to my French friend that kept following me um, and kept bringing this subject up um, for me to keep working over in my mind until finally, after, I think it was five weeks, after five weeks, I decided I've got to to contact him. I've got to to figure out what's going on in his life because I also had this knowing that it wasn't just a, a synchronicity that I had created for myself, but that there was an element of something coming from his side as well. There was something I felt that he was trying to communicate to me and trying to reestablish a connection because it had been so long since we talked to one another. And when I finally got to the point where I was like, all right, I'm going to write to him and find out what on earth is going on. It turned out that I guess it was, it was one week after that GPS incident that his first child was born. And I knew as soon as he, as he told me that, that that was, that was the reason we had had to connect at that time that he needed to tell me about that. Cause for him, this, this was a hugely transitional moment in his life and he needed me to, to know about it and be a part of it. And this is, okay, once again, these transitional moments, these powerful events. Now, I have, now, from my from my own end, I've done a lot of audio interviews, and, and I have to tell the same story about seeing these owls in the mountains, and I've told it maybe uh, many hundreds of times at this point. And if you're, you're starting to do book promotion for this, just get ready. You're going to tell this story a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I am very cautious. I mean, you obviously wrote it out in the book, and I am very cautious not to embellish the story, not to turn it into a, you know, the big fish story where the fish just gets bigger every time, you know, right. I tell the story about. But, you know, it's it's like the same thing. I, I uh, My editor... Uh, Suzanne Chancellor came down sort of hard on me and said, you use the word flurry too much. You say flurry a lot. And the way I use it, and this is how I use it in the sentence, is like, and then I was trapped in a flurry of synchronicities. So when you said that like this one key synchronicity kicked off a bunch more, that's exactly what happened with me in that opening. That's how it happened. It, it, yeah, that's just how it works. <laughs> yes, and now the mechanism of how it works like I don't care, right? I mean, we could, we could, we'll never answer that. Well, we could probably dance around it and come up with some very articulate ideas on how it might work, but I don't think we will truly know. So I, I don't want to get lost in that in this conversation because you know that's. I think the stories themselves stand on their own and and tell things so beautifully. Yes. Rather than getting lost in the, you know, uh, I I think you can you have to speculate a little bit on what's going on, but the l less you speculate, the more power the story has. Well, because I think the important thing, really, I, I mean, we need to hear the event that happened, but so much of the importance of it is how it affected your life afterward. And how did it affect your life afterward? On my end of things. Um, well, I can say one thing that it, that came out of it. There's a great big book. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it affected my 
professional trajectory in that way, but it even more affected my personal trajectory because I had really been in a state of, of, of distress related to France and my friend and connecting with him just through that, you know, we exchanged a couple of emails. It really was very minimal in so many ways, but it completely settled my mind. I, I felt this enormous peace. Um, it actually led me to, to have some other um, important conversations with my husband about France and, and my desire to, um, to still be connected to it in different ways. And he was surprisingly just so open to it in a way that he hadn't been before. It was like me talking about this synchronicity that had happened to me led to led to important relationships, led to an important renewal of of um, led to me being better understood in my relationship with my husband and just opening up so many possibilities about the future of France and our relationship. It was just, it was incredible to go from, I mean, the day before feeling so weighed down by all of this and it was just like a weight lifted. And I just, I just felt such, such peace. And, and it's, it's last, I mean, that was four years ago and that stress has not returned. Like it's, it, it reminds me of, of you talking about um, your, your past life regression and how suddenly you felt the weight of your, your clinical depression just leave you. And in my case, it wasn't clinical depression, but it was, it was this psychic turmoil that was just constant for me. And suddenly it was gone. Well, that is remarkable and powerful. And I, at this point, we have reached our 15 minute mark in the, in the interview, and we will have to take a short break. For free Dreamlanders, you're going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and my guest this week is Sharon hewitt Rollett, and she wrote a great big book called The Source and Significance of Coincidence, A Hard Look at Astonishing Evidence. And that just came out a few months ago, and that is going to be the core of this talk. We're going to, we're going to go all over the map a little bit. Just before the break... You talked about that sense of oppression lifting mm -hmm. and the changes that that these things can bring to your life. Now, it's fair to say that this coincidence, this powerful synchronicity, this flurry of synchronicities led to the writing of this big book. Yes, absolutely. Okay, now here's <laughs> here's my question. Now, you've got a continuum, right? And, and this is a nice visual, right? It's a nice straight line, and on one end of the continuum is total disbelief or maybe denial. And on the opposite end of the continuum is absolute knowing and total believing. Mm -hmm. My question for you, where were you at the beginning of the book project on that continuum? Ah, oh, that's a great question. So... I think before this GPS coincidence happened, I was probably right in the middle of the continuum. And then when the GPS coincidence happened, I was 
almost all the way at the believing side, maybe just a smidge away. There was like some little part of me that had, that wondered if there was like, if it was possible statistically that this was just chance. And so I actually, in my research for the book, the first huge chunk of research was doing statistics and trying to look at all of the different ways that people have modeled uh, the probability of coincidences. And I ended up writing a paper in the Journal of Scientific Exploration specifically about that topic because it seemed like nobody had really tackled the core thing that was bugging me. Once I had written that paper, I was all the way at the end of the continuum. I mean, there's, there's just... There's no doubt left in my mind. I... Okay, so you answered my second question. So, so <laughs> okay. my second question was, what about at the end of the book? Where were you at on that continuum? Yeah, all the way at the right. Or, or, I'm imagining at the right. I don't know if you actually said that, but all the way to the belief Where, side. To the belief side. Yeah. So, um, yeah, okay, very good, very good. So, now, who is this book directed at? Are you trying to convince people that this is true? That's what it like. You're. You're, I mean, folks, this is, this is a, this is a 632 page book. The table of contents is six pages long. The, <laughs> the, the index is 11 pages long and there's yeah, 20 pages big. of references. So it's like, it's a big, thick book. Now it's, it kind of could sort of fit on the academic bookshelf, right? But it's, it's not really an academic book. It's got a, no, it's, it's, it's very readable. And that's exactly what I was going for. I wanted a book that was very serious and that um, gave people who maybe have some kind of academic background, gave them enough uh, references that they would feel like this is somebody serious, this is somebody who's done their homework. If they want more information about any topic, I show them exactly where to go to get more information. But I did try to make it very readable as well because I want people to just kind of be able to get engrossed in it. Um, and, and they don't have to, you know, read any of the references, but they're there if they want them. And I think my, my target audience with the book was somebody who was like me at the beginning of the process of doing the research for it. Somebody who had had some odd experiences, but they weren't quite sure if they meant anything or not, if they were really indicative of some deeper order to the universe. And, I wanted to kind of give them the benefit of all of the research that I had been doing for the past several years and say, look, you're not alone. Lots of other people have had similar experiences. Here's the huge range of experiences that people have related to this and to help people kind of see where their experiences fit into that overall pattern. So during the writing process, was there any point when you sort of, I mean, this is a big, 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 research project, was there any point when you kind of were overwhelmed and you kind of said, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? I think there was a moment when I had, I had started the research, I was maybe six months to a year in, and it was the moment where I realized that I had to write the book. Because I think originally I thought I was just going to write, you know, an academic article or something. But I realized I've got to write a book about this. And I realized that this was probably the kind of book that was going to take 10 years of my life. And that was quite overwhelming. But at the same time, I realized that I had to do it, that there was, there was nothing else in my life that was um, 
as important a task for me to accomplish as to write this book. Okay, so you're, I, I almost word for word could say the same thing about when I started that owl book. So, mm -hmm. And there was certainly a point in the middle when I was like, oh my God, what have I, what have I gotten myself into? Now here, here's the next question for you. Were there any synchronicities while writing the book? Yes. I mean, directly in relationship to writing the book. Yes. Um, so the ones that are freshest in my mind are things that happened in the last like six months before publication. So the one that was the most confirmatory for me was I had actually gotten my paper on coincidences accepted um, by the Journal of Scientific Exploration, uh, which was a big, a big deal for me because it meant other people who were very educated on this topic were taking seriously what I was researching. So that got accepted for publication. And about six months before my book came out, I got the proofs for that article. Now, as you know, Mike, from reading my book, um, the number 33 is very important to me. It shows up all of the time in connection to synchronicities and coincidences in my life at very important moments. So I get the proofs for this article on coincidences that I have poured my life into. <laughs> and it turns out that it's going to be published as the very first article in volume 33 of the Journal of Scientific Exploration. And I had no idea about that in the past. I mean, I, I wasn't paying attention to what volume or issue they were on, but there it was. And for me, that was, it was just, it was huge. It was like, this is exactly the moment that you were supposed to have produced this piece of work. You're right on track. And that, that's, that, I, so I'm coming from this whole thing from the UFO end of things. Right. And you're coming from a completely different end. And, but I, there's like, and we're basically telling the same story. Yeah, the the arc is very very similar. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And the um in the first book, I realized like, well, the the umbrella term I use now is like highly charged human experience, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. that UFO sighting is highly charged. The you know desperate yearning that's highly charged. Um, so all these things, dreams and such, can be very highly charged for for anyone. Now, um, oh, so here's here was my question. The uh, you go to a UFO conference. You just you ask people, you can just you can just say, what's your number? What's your number? And everyone <laughs> will go, oh, my number is 1111. And the next person will say, oh, my number is 1010. And, oh, my number is 444. And there's this weird thing where like it's you don't have to try. Like it, people all mm -hmm. have it. And I mean, I don't yeah. know. I, I guess you could probably go stand in the line at the grocery store and ask people what their number is. And I bet you a goodly amount would, would say, oh, here's a number that shows up in a weird way in my life. They may not have the vocabulary of calling it a synchronicity, but I, I'm certain that many, if not most people, have a number that, that seems to plague them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very curious. I, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking of, you know, my close friends and and certainly the the person that I talk with most about the synchronicities in my life, She's she's got her number. Yeah, we all, I think um, we all do. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> Here, I'm going to tell a little thing. So uh, I uh, wrote an essay about synchronicity. This is going years ago. And this is after just starting my kind of self-research into the UFO stuff. And I was talking to a lot of people with UFO contact experiences. And I would ask all of them, hey, if, what, do you have a lot of synchronicities in their life? And they just, you could just, they would like 
they couldn't even begin to try to describe the volume of synchronicities mm-hmm. that happen. They have. They, you just see them roll their eyes like you're asking <laughs> an impossible question. It's it's monumental the synchronicities I get in my life. And then I wrote this little essay, and I felt all proud of myself. And I and I said, um, you know, people who have the UFO contact experience are more likely to have a high degree of synchronicities in their life. And I had a friend read the essay, and she rolled her eyes, and she gave me this thing, like, are you, like, anyone on a spiritual path will have a lot of synchronicities. And when she said that, it was like, for me, mm. I was like, UFO contact is a spiritual path. Mm. Yeah, I just got really strong goosebumps. Oh, good. Right on but, for yeah. goosebumps. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah. <laughs> now, are these markers on a spiritual path, these, these synchronistic events? Um, are you asking for me personally I'm asking or in you, general? yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I have, yeah, absolutely. Good. Um, it's, it's been a spiritual thing from the very beginning. I mean, it, when I, uh, years before, you know, the GPS coincidence and all of that, when I started, you know, experiencing just these small little things, um, it was very much in the context of a spiritual yearning um, because I actually grew up in, the Baptist church. And I went to a Christian college. And when I was in Christian college, I ended up losing my faith, um, becoming an atheist, which was kind of a traumatic event because that was my whole life, uh, Christianity at that point. Uh, but I went through this very long period. Um, I guess about a decade where I was pretty much an atheist, sometimes agnostic, but usually atheist and at the same time in the core of me i just had this very strong longing for a spiritual connection i just didn't see any physical evidence of the existence of god and i i really wanted there to be a god but i i honestly had to say i don't see any reason to believe in one and then um at another very important transitional moment in my life these little things started happening to me. Um, a lot of them, they're not huge, blatant, you know, coincidences like the GPS one. It's hard to explain to other people the impact that they had on me, but they were deeply impactful to me and actually convinced me that there was indeed a God and that there, there was, there was something else um, behind my experiences and the the world that I saw around me, that it wasn't fruitless, the search that I was on and the yearning that I had, there was something that was actually going to be able to fill that longing in me. And this was well before the, the events with the GPS. Yeah, this was, this was in 2010 and the GPS was five years later in 2015. So yeah. And then here I have to ask, what is your title? I know you've graduated with a philosophy degree. Yeah, so I have a PhD in uh, philosophy, analytic philosophy, um, but I was only in academia for a couple of years after that, taught for a couple of years, and I decided that I just, I'm kind of a, a free spirit. I, I work best when I can pursue whatever is whatever I'm passionate about at the moment. And I just couldn't quite fit myself into the box of, of academic philosophy. So I had to, to get out of there. So I, I do a lot of different things. I don't have a, a real, 
official title at this point. Okay, well, so just, I mean, uh, uh, PhD in academic philosophy, and then at mm-hmm. the same time, you are going through this desperate yearning over the existence of God. I mean, this that's like those two. I mean, that there must be tensions and there must be, that must be. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm just looking at it from the outside thinking like, wow, you're, mm-hmm. you're wrestling with the big, big, big questions. And this is something that I often say where like if, if two people start a conversation about UFOs mm-hmm. and if that conversation does not go to the big questions very quickly, like if they, if they talk about UFOs and it doesn't lead to what does it all mean? Why are we here? <laughs> is there a God? I mean, if it doesn't go to those questions quickly, then the two people are having like a totally surface conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this past week, um, I've been reading um, your last two books because I had only read The Messengers uh, before. But when I realized we were going to have this conversation, um, I, I read the stories from The Messengers and then Hidden Experience and was reminded of some things that you had said in the messengers that I had forgotten. For instance, you talking about how the name Christ or portions of the name Christ show up in so many different people's lives related to your UFO experiences and the stories that you've collected. And then there's some other things that you include in stories from the messengers, particularly related to Jesus and to religion. I just found it so fascinating because because that's kind of where I'm at right now in my exploration of these things is to try to understand how synchronicity and, and psychic phenomena as a whole fit into spirituality. Um, where, where are their connections with traditional religion? Um, can we integrate those two things? Uh, and it sounds like you you don't talk really about what those connections might be in your books. You just kind of gesture at, well, it looks like there's some kind of connection. Do you have any thoughts? Have you been, has, has your thought on those, that topic progressed anymore since Stories of the Messengers? Well, so you're asking. I'm asking you. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm all for this. So, so <laughs> yeah. that's the big, big, big question, you know, like, uh, is there a God and what does it all mean? And so, and I'm like, like if you overanalyze something, I think you kind of destroy it, right? It crumbles in front of you if you overanalyze something. Mm-hmm. And and I use the term campfire story a lot. And I, and I think we all kind of intuitively know what a campfire story is, right? So you sit around the campfire, you tell the story and it's nighttime and there's kids around and you tell this sort of spooky story and it doesn't really have an ending and you just let it sit there, right? You know, so there's as opposed to a parable or as opposed to a formal short story that has to have a beginning, middle and end. A campfire story can be mm-hmm. just a little... Now, these these UFO and owl accounts, these powerful synchronicities, they have the flavor of a campfire story. They're a little bit open-ended. Mm, mm-hmm. And if you if you make the effort to to overanalyze it, I think you do a disservice. I think it's touching you at an intuitive level the same way that a mm-hmm. that a myth might touch you. Uh, I I love that way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's a cop out in one way because then I don't have to go through the hard work of trying <laughs> to analyze it. So, um, uh, no, so when I set out to write 
the I mean both those books, the all three books, I guess more the there's not much religious stuff in the third book, but there's a, a surprising amount in the second book, Stories from the Messengers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did not look for it. I wasn't asking for it. It just welled up and it showed itself there. And there was like a, you know, like, I don't know, what's kind of considered, I don't know how to say this, almost impolite to like get all churchy on someone. You know? Yeah. And so I was like, like, do I even include this? And I'm like, yes, I have to include it. Yes, I have to. I have to address it. So I addressed it as thoughtfully as I could. Not, yeah. you know, like I was raised Lutheran and it was about as benign and and unobtrusive uh, Christian upbringing as as is possible. Mm. Right. So it's pretty light. So I, I have no, I guess I have roots there, but I don't, I haven't been to church in 45 years or something like that. So, but, but the story, like that's, we're in the West, like that's, that is our mythology, right? The, right. the Bible. So that's, it's seeped into everything. There's a church on every corner and every downtown or every city in, in North America. It's like, almost like an archetypal thing, this, this, right. that, that, that story. Um, so when it comes up, for example, there was a woman named Kristen who would do these long trips alone in the desert. And I mean, that I that was right there on the surface. <laughs> Someone named Kristen, like Christ in the desert. That's like, right. That's. And so she's having these what amounts to she's very concerned. She's having these contact events while alone in the desert. That's Jesus meeting, you know, the big questions, you know, the mm-hmm. devil tempting him. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate to do this. We've reached a little bit over. We're, we've got to take our second break. For free Dreamlanders, you're going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and my guest is Sharon hewitt Rollette, and she wrote a great big book titled The Source and Significance of Coincidences. And you, just before the break, you turned the tables on me. You asked me a question, and, and it was about how this religious imagery, how this religious mythology, let's say, sort of wells up within these highly charged events, whether they're UFO contact, whether they're a powerful owl sighting, or whether, in your case, they're powerful. You use the term coincidence, and I use the term synchronicity. I almost never use the word coincidence. And I'll ask you about that in a moment, but let's let's stay on this train. So mm-hmm. I, without meaning to, wrote a book with a lot of religious, specifically Christian underpinnings sort of interwoven into the tapestry of the book. I didn't do that on purpose. It just emerged out of the process of the stories that that arrived in my lap. Yeah, and like you said, you you were felt a little bit hesitant about it, like you might offend people or be impolite or something by mentioning it, but you had to put it in because it it's out there. And I felt that way too about some things that I put in my book. I have a chapter on God, um, God as a source of coincidences, because I think a lot of people. <sighs> automatically think you know if these you know big synchronicities are happening to them then it's god speaking to them and so i wanted to address that question head on but most of what i do in that chapter is to try to to open people's minds a little bit to kind of uh, the philosopher in me is saying well you know what what evidence is there that it really is god what is your definition of God, um, you can't jump from the the fact that this supernatural seeming thing has happened to you to, well, it must be caused by the God that I learned about, you know, in Sunday school growing up. There could be a very different kind of God. There could be uh, something you wouldn't even call God, but some other kind of 
powerful force or mind that's that's shaping your experience. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is open people's minds. But one thing that I do kind of tag on at the end of that chapter is there are these really interesting experiences that I've come across where people who don't have any particular interest in religion or in Christianity have strange experiences that are directly related to Jesus or other Christian imagery. And one in particular that I'm thinking of is um, from Andrew Paquette, uh, whose book Dreamer I mentioned several times in my book because he's had so many interesting psychic dreams, um, verifiably psychic dreams over his life. And he writes in his book about how strange it was to him as an atheist or agnostic to suddenly have Jesus popping up in his dreams and to start having dreams where some sort of being was coming to him telling me, and this is a sign that Jesus is going to return. You know, I'm going to show you this three times. And when you see this happen in the world, that's a sign that Jesus is going to return. For instance, he had a dream about the tsunami in Southeast Asia um, before it happened. I think it was a few months to a year before it happened. And this sort of angelic figure in the dream told him, I'm going to show you this. This is a sign of Jesus' imminent return. So then the tsunami happened. So he was like, well, this wasn't just nothing. Um, but I mean, clearly Jesus has not, you know, returned to earth in the way that we imagine him doing um, from, you know, reading the book of Revelation or what have you. So th this is something that I've thought about a lot. Um, and I've done a lot of reading about other people who have had dreams like this or who have experienced things in their near-death experiences that are related to this, trying to make sense of what does this mean that all of all these people are having these prophetic dreams that often involve something about the coming of Jesus or the coming of Christ Messiah. And the most interesting insight on this that I have found uh, came from Nancy Evans Bush, who um, has written some great stuff on near-death experiences. And what she said is that these sort of prophetic, apocalyptic-seeming dreams um, or, or other experiences that people have often are not symbolic of something that's going to happen on a world level, but it's something that is happening inside the the heart and mind of the person who is having the dream. So Paquette himself doesn't talk about the interpretation of the dream in this way, but it made me think that this dream that he had about the coming of Christ after the tsunami might've been a dream about Christ coming and taking up a more important role in his own life about a spiritual transformation happening to him. And I've, and I've seen this same pattern happening in, in lots of other people's uh, dreams and, and strange experiences where they have these dreams about Christ. And it, it turns out to be, like you said, like a, a symbolic, mythical archetype of a huge spiritual transition in their life. Yes, and that's this is the, the, um, the struggle, right? I mean, do you, you're presented with symbology— and 
it's a mistake to take that literal, right? I, I guess the, the, the symbology is, is exactly that. It's a symbol of something. Mm-hmm. And if you take it literally, then you're, 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 you're going down the wrong path. Let's right. Say. I mean, if you actually, yeah, if you actually think Jesus is going to show up, you know, standing in the clouds, you know, the day after the tsunami, then yeah, you're going to be disappointed. But if you, if you take the enormous emotion that comes along with that image and you take that seriously, then I think you're on the right path there. Think about what does it mean for Jesus to be coming on the clouds? What does it mean? What would it mean for me? And maybe I'm going to go through a transition um, that is best represented in that way. So my I, Richard Dolan was the publisher of the um, of the books, and and I did the first mm-hmm. book, and he was he would kept on asking me like, when do you get to the conclusion? When do you when do you sum it all up? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you're going to be disappointed. You know, he was reading the book along, and I'm like, oh, I like this book. What when do you when do you like really explain it? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> and he he, and for the second book, he was like, no way, I'm holding your feet to the fire. You gotta come up with an answer. Like, what does this mean? So for the owl, I said the owl is symbolic of the transformational process. And that is like, mm-hmm. that's so open-ended, mm-hmm. it can mean anything. But that's, I had to boil it down to something. The owl is symbolic of the transformational process. Mm-hmm. Having a prophetic dream can be mm-hmm. transformational. Having a powerful synchronicity can certainly change your life. It has changed, I've talked to hundreds of people and they've said, oh, this one thing happened, this little coincidence or big coincidence for them, it's somehow... Oftentimes it sounds like, oh, that doesn't sound that exciting from my end, just you telling me. But I could see in their eyes it was it was mind-blowing for them, and, and it changed their lives. Mm-hmm. So these are transformational events. Yeah, and I think this image of Christ— It's a death and rebirth. It's perfect. It, it's, it's death, rebirth, and it, this whole idea of, of self-sacrifice. And it, it's, it's allowing yourself to die— in order to be reborn in service to others. Now I got the chills. Um, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm thinking of like, I did the stupidest thing imaginable. I basically dropped out of my old careers, doing illustration work, doing outdoor work. And I sat down at the desk and wrote these three big fat books on (laughs) owls and synchronicity and my own experiences. And it has been absolutely unbelievably rewarding in all ways except financially. And yes. I <laughs> right. I love the fact that I can open my email inbox and people share these powerful, beautiful, transformational stories where I guess, I mean, I made the conscious effort to die. I made the mm-hmm. conscious effort, my old life, I'll, I'll let it wither and die. This new life is beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I have to ask you, I use the term archetype all the time. You are a philosopher. How would you, what's your off the cuff definition of archetype? So I think of it in terms of Plato's ideals, his ideas, um, the ideal forms. So, because I think he was talking about archetypes. So they are ideas, they're mental objects to which things in the physical world tend to conform or, or almost like things in the physical world yearn to conform or are intended to conform to this ideal. 
Okay. And I think I go more for the Jungian thing, where an archetype is something that we all intuitively can tap into. And I think they're probably both true. I think because you have to be able to tap, you tap into it um, in order to become it. I think there's this feeling of attraction toward it. There's, or it's not even necessarily attraction in the sense of wanting it, but sort of being unavoidably drawn towards that archetype that you're, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the trajectory that our lives have taken. Like, I think in some ways your life unavoidably starts to conform to this, this archetype of whether it's, it's Christ. I, I mean, Christians, that's, that's what they talk about all the time is our lives being conformed to the image of Christ. And I think a lot of us, whether we are consciously Christian or not, our lives are molded by that story and we're drawn into that story and we imitate Christ without even knowing it sometimes. Well, I don't want to aim that high as far as what my life is imitating. What I can say is that I have I have been I don't know very dedicated, obsessively so, to storytelling, sharing these stories. The quantity of stories in your book of high quality, amazing and, and it's not just uh synchronicities and coincidences. You go you tap into a lot of what might be called paranormal experiences or or I guess highly charged human events with dreams and, and... yeah but yeah I try to bring in things that will help illuminate the source of and significance of coincidences so they're not all coincidences themselves but I think they throw light on where the coincidences are coming from someone asked me recently like um, you know after doing all these books and doing all this research how has your life changed what's different and I had to think for a second and I was like and I, my answer was I now live in a magical universe mm-hmm so I and I don't want to overthink that, right? So mm-hmm. like this stuff happens, it's magic. I am absolutely content with that word. It's perfect. Yeah. I don't have to I don't have to dwell on it. I don't have to try to dissect it. These magic events happen. They happen. Yeah. And they change people. They're transformative. And I'm documenting and archiving and, and doing my best to put them out there for people in the hopes that these stories, whether they involve UFOs or owls or synchronicities, will will elevate or, let's say, mm-hmm. allow these other people to, to live in a magical universe. Yeah. And I think that's something that so many people need. I know that it's something that I needed because we're, we're bombarded by the message that our lives don't have meaning, that we are all accidents in this universe. And to allow ourselves or to have somebody else come from the outside and tell us, no, you're allowed to believe the meaning that you feel or the meaning that you're looking for, you can find it. And here are some of the indications um, all around you that that meaning is, is available, is out there for you. The synchronicities do that. And, and for me, also reading the stories of other people's paranormal encounters of various kinds just confirm the fact that, yes, there is so much more to this universe than science is currently telling us. And it's okay 
to recognize that there's something magical happening. It, it, it just enriches our lives so much just to know that we're not crazy for wanting more than what, you know, pop culture has been giving us. And I sense it too. I think I sense a hunger out there. And, and I also, you, you're probably getting this too. You're getting emails and they probably begin with, you're probably going to think I'm crazy or <laughs> yes. I've never told the story to anyone before, or I don't know how to make sense of this. Right. So people are basically asking you for help and they're asking two yeah. things. They're asking for help. And I think people just need to be heard. Yeah. So the, if they have a powerful synchronicity that, that around the dinner table, their family kind of rolls their eyes at, they, they understand that you will listen. And that, yeah. I take that responsibility very seriously. Yes. And I think that's another one of the major reasons that I wrote the book. I think I do say that in the introduction is I want people to know that when they're going through these experiences and feel like they're going crazy because I've, I've been there and I've felt so crazy. As have I, as have I. Yeah. <laughs> they need to know that they're not alone, that other people have been on this journey and that they're not just imagining things, that something important is really happening and that they can just just work through it step by step and and something amazing may come out of it. I so here I have tried to live my life with synchronicity as a I used to say signpost. I don't say that anymore. What I say now mm -hmm. and I stole this from a fellow named Alan Abadessa Green. I interviewed him a few weeks ago and and he's a he's a young Do you know the term synchromystic? I know it because I listened to that interview you did with him. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, that's good. So you do yeah. know it. Okay. So Alan Evidesa Green, uh, I said I, I looked at synchronicity as a signpost. He said, no, synchronicity is a compass. Mm. Like you're on the open ocean in a boat without wind, and it's a cloudy day. You have no idea how to find your direction. You need a compass. Yeah. I, I like that metaphor better than the signpost on the path. Because it it shows that you still have to do some of the work. It's not just going to say, go over there. It's going to say, okay, well, this way is north. Which way are you headed? <laughs> yes. Yes. Or, you know, you have to know where you want to go, right? You have to know where you want to go. In case, right. Yeah, right. So. Yeah. Um, now, I have tried to live my life at the mercy of synchronicities. And it's been challenging, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. It's financially irresponsible. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> Maybe some other yeah. people have other experiences, but that's not mine. And then, um, but it's, uh, but it is, it is, as I said earlier, I take the responsibility very seriously that I am suddenly in this position where, where I'm a little bit farther down the path than maybe the people who are sharing some of these stories with me. Now, here, I'll give you an example. So mm -hmm. this and Robert Moss shows up in your book, and Robert Moss has mm -hmm. written a lot of books about dreams and dreaming. And um, I didn't actually know who he was when this woman sent me this letter. And she said she's um, she has this dream. And in the dream, she's standing in this snowy field. And this owl flies up and plops into the snow. So this owl is like sticking with its head in the snow and its little feet sticking out of the snow. <laughs> and then Robert Moss runs out of the woods right next to her, runs right up to her and points to the owl and says, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. <laughs> and I was like, and then she wakes up now. So there's like. The guy who writes about <laughs> dreams shows up in her dreams. And then then about a year later, I get this letter from this woman. And she says, oh, you know, I um, I was sitting outside and I was kind of meditating. It was this beautiful day. And then I, I heard this owl hooting. 
this is owl hooting. And then I said somewhere, and I haven't seen an owl in a long time. I love owls. I was trying to see this owl. And as I'm looking around, I see this UFO. I see this flying saucer, this like bright glowing flying saucer in the sky. I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a perfect owl UFO story. So I look up her name uh-huh. and like her, her, she sent to an email. So I like look up, has this person ever sent me a letter before? Right. She's the one who sent me the letter about Robert Moss and the, oh. and the owl in the snow. So now you like you. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. <laughs> Who's the uh, grand chess master that's like putting all the pieces in place on the, on the chessboard of reality. Like how did that story, who, who, like you go crazy trying to figure out how that story all fell into place. <laughs> well, the, you just said who, who I said, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but I never thought about it before about the call that at least in America, like you say, we have for the owl is who, who like is asking the question, who, who, who is this? Yes. It's talking <laughs> like it's, it's very much a question. But getting back to your, your story about the Robert Moss dream and then the UFO. So what I take from that, just hearing those two elements, it sounds like the message is the UFO is a metaphor as well. Is that how you understand it? Or I, I could care less if a UFO is a metal spaceship from another planet. Right. What fun is that, right? I mean, that's too simple. Right. No, it could be. Yeah, it could very well be a metal spaceship from another planet. Yeah, it could. It could be that and also be a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which would be much more interesting. OK, so so then you have to ask a metaphor for what? And then I would say the transformational process. That's sort of a fallback answer yeah. for me. Yes, it's a call to transform. So I have to ask you a question um, because just yesterday I finished your book, Hidden Experience, and I read the last chapter about the hypnosis session that you did where you remembered well i mean i got scare quotes around it because you're not willing to say whether it was actually a memory or not but where you had this um apparent memory of being on some kind of craft or being in a conference room um with uh i guess it was I don't know, aliens for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, like it, it felt like a, it felt like a grand jury hearing. Okay. Like I was, I was on trial. Yes. So when I read that, the first thing that came into my mind was Michael Newton's books about people um, in the life between lives standing before their counsel on the other side. I just, uh, just, uh, I, I just, ordered a Michael Newton book on audio. Did you really? Just two days ago, and I just started listening to it yesterday. I just got about a first chapter into it. Have you ever read his stuff before? Never. Oh, oh keep going. Keep okay. going. Well, th- well, that's very interesting. <laughs> it's all interesting. Uh, yes. So, all... yeah. So, what he... so Michael Newton um, specifically does hypnotic regressions where he takes people to the time between their incarnations on earth and what comes up over and over again in these sessions is when uh, people die they end up going before what a lot of them call a council but it's like maybe five to seven um, spiritual beings of some kind that are arrayed kind of in a semicircle in front of them and then they're 
you know, standing, some of them talk about like a podium, like you kind of say there was some sort of podium like thing, but are standing there and answering questions basically about how they did in their life, reviewing their life with these people. And another element of similarity that I saw with your story is that um, a lot of Michael Newton's subjects would see or feel the presence of their personal spirit guides at their side or slightly behind them while they're standing in front of their council. So when you talked about these, some of these beings walking with you into this room. And and I also felt that they were there right and left of me in that room, though this okay. is very odd because yeah. I, I don't remember seeing them right and left of me, but that's kind of the way I frame it in my head. Well, and that's, that's exactly what these people say. They talk about, I could feel, you know, the presence of my spirit guides, like, you know, slightly behind me, supporting me is what they usually say while they're discussing things with this council and are, you know, either being told, you know, you did a great job uh, or, you know, if there's some things you got to work on the next time around sort of thing. But I, I, it's very interesting to me that you haven't read any of Michael Newton's books because I thought maybe that had kind of influenced the way that you had this experience. Well, I haven't read Michael Newton's I haven't read yeah. his books, but I've certainly mm -hmm. read a lot of books on on the near death mm -hmm. experience. And and, yeah. and as silly as it sounds, I've listened to a lot of podcasts. Oh yeah, on it, which yeah, which I think is valuable. And then um, Absolutely. but so so here's that story. Now here's that story. Transformational process, right? Mm -hmm. So that story, like that happened on March tenth, two thousand and thirteen, the night I slept out in the desert of Southern Utah. This is going into the desert again. So right, I. I knew something happened that night. All the all the flurry, the, there's that word, the flurry of coincidences, uh, synchronicities, that of psychic events that followed that night in the desert are mind blowing. But that event, like I stood in front of this tribunal, I was a gray alien. I wasn't me. I was like, mm -hmm. I was physically a, a, a gray alien. I talk about being in a rubber suit. Right. Like, how did I get in this? How did this happen? And I'm looking at these beings and I say, what am I doing here? What, what? Why am I here? And they said, now is the time. I'm like, what do you mean now is the time? What does that mean? It's like, you volunteered for this. And I couldn't get out of that loop. Now is the time. You volunteered for this. And then I had like a emotional breakdown and shoot them out. I mean, I swore at them. I mean, there's like, I'm <laughs> spitting out the F word at them. And I'm like, you never told me it would be this hard being here in this physical body. I mean, to tell the story correctly would take a long time. But yeah. the, the implication is like, I lived as a gray alien somewhere off wherever, some other planet, some other dimensions, not here. And I volunteered to come to Earth to be this person I am now. This sounds ridiculous as it's coming out of my mouth, but this is how it plays out. And then they said... It sounds, it sounds very familiar to me from so many things. So, but yeah. Okay, so but then they said, they said, now is the time. You volunteered for this. And I didn't have the hypnotic regression until I did two of them. The exact same story came out. I say in the book... It felt like a rerun, right? It's like, oh, this TV show. I love this TV show. Oh, it's mm -hmm. the same one. Drat. Like, and it's like word for mm -hmm. word, frame for frame, the exact same story. Yeah. And so all of a sudden when I'm in this in this hypnotic trance, which 2017, so I happened in 2013. So that's four years later. And and then uh and then 2018 I did a second hypnotic regression, got the same story, that's five years later. So I I 
at, at the end of hypnotic regression, it's like, I'm, I'm totally emotional. I'm freaking out. I'm swearing. I'm yelling at these things. I'm like, you never told me it would be this hard. And then poof. And I'm like, I think I'm back in the sleeping bag. And I had no memory at all mm. of any of these things until the hypnotic regression. I am so cautious to, mm -hmm. to put too much weight. Is it true? Did it really happen? Is it a metaphor? Is it a dream? Is it symbolic? Like, if I if I like get tied up in those knots, I'll never untangle myself. Now, what I can say that happened is, I kid you not, I am not exaggerating, that happened on March 10th, 2013. March 11th, 2013. I started writing, I started writing an essay, a long format essay that later became the big blue book, The Messenger. That's the day you started that essay. The day after. The next day. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you didn't remember anything about that experience. Yeah. Now is the time. Mm -hmm. You volunteered for mm -hmm. this. So the, the, if I take, like, did I volunteer? Did I, like, was there, like, a little formal contract between me as a gray alien and some alien planet, like, before I incarnated here? And they said, okay, on this day, we're gonna, you're going to write a big, fat book about owls. Yeah. So it's a transformational experience. I, I I transformed, and I knew it. Right. I knew it that within two days of that of that event in the desert, I knew that my old life had ended and my new mm -hmm. life began. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this uh, transformation is so tied into this whole idea of, of mission and or assignment or destiny for our lives, too. Um, which comes up so much in your books and which I feel so much in my own life. Um, all of the pieces just kind of falling into place um, at exactly the right time to move you just, you know, a little bit further down the path or to completely change your direction at the right moment. Um, and I, I have to come back to this, the similarity to it's not just Michael Newton's work, but um, because you know, I have I have a friend who actually remembers some of these things without the aid of hypnosis. Um, remembers interacting with these spiritual beings, um, even if these these two experiences, like what you had and what people are reporting from the Life Between Lives, are not the same experience. I mean, maybe you know, yours is has to do with um, you know life forms from some other dimension or something. And these have to do with quote unquote spiritual forms or, or what have you, maybe not that they're not the same uh, beings in both cases, but the archetypal situation of being on trial of being talked to about what you were supposed to do in your life, what you need to do to be on track is exactly the same in those cases. It seems like there are these other beings, whatever their ultimate nature is, that are interacting with us and helping us to do what we agreed to do here on Earth. And that may be a metaphor, do what we agreed to do. That may be a metaphor for just being our best selves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This has been a remarkable conversation. I'm so glad we got to talk. Yes. How do people get in touch with you? Um, I've got a blog, Sharon Rowlett, 
uh, that's spelled R-A-W-L-E-T-T-E, SharonRoulette.wordpress.com, or you can just Google my name and it'll come up. Um, and my email address is on the about page there. So you're certainly welcome to get in touch with me by email. I'm going to tell the listeners, please do not be intimidated by this book. It is a book written by an academic. It is not an academic book. It is a beautiful, fun, easily formatted, so you can jump around a little bit, which I did. I'm very guilty of doing that. And and I just jumped to the stuff that, that was calling me. It's all very well organized, and I know a little bit about what's involved in putting a book like this together. <laughs> so my hat's off to you. It's a big, powerful, important book, and, and I want to thank you for writing it. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you for your books. <laughs> yes. Let's follow up on this at some future date and do a second big in-depth conversation. Sounds great. Well, yes, that went awesome. Good. Yeah. We we actually covered quite a bit of ground in there. I know. It's funny. I get sort of like intimidated. You sit before the interview and like, oh, my God, I, I have so many questions I didn't. Here's one question here. I'll, I might even put this in. I might just tag this on at the end. So I wrote this question up before we started uh, talking. Mm-hmm. And and I was I kind of just write this stuff out. So here's the question. Uh, we are addressing the same thing in our research. And I'm going to be cautious on how I say this. We have written the same book, but from a different angle. Now, I didn't write angle. I wrote, we wrote the same book, but from a different angel. <laughs> and after I read that, I looked at it and I was like, we wrote the same book from a different angel. And I'm like, no, that's not right. The correct way is we wrote a different book from the same angel. That feels more accurate mm. to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny when we when you first started communicating with me through Facebook, you said a couple of times it's like I think we I think we're doing the same thing. I think we're writing about the same thing. And at first, I was like what are you talking about? I don't say anything about UFOs in my book. And I was, you know, I, I know that we both talk about synchronicity, but I just felt like they were just the phenomena were still quite different. But the more I read your books and refresh my memory about what exactly was the heart of what you were saying, the more I realized that you're absolutely right. And it's like, it's like we're, we're converging on the same thing you come at it from this angle of looking at it um, with people who have specific kind of metaphorical experience, who specifically are involved with owls and UFOs. It, it's amazing to me how many experiences use those metaphors. I mean, that, oh my that, god, you have no idea. I'm like, my email inbox is I can't I can't keep up with it. Yeah, no, that's crazy. <laughs> To the point where I like, I wonder, well, maybe there's more than a metaphorical element here, or, or why is this metaphor so much more powerful than others? Because you don't see that same kind of pattern, or at least I haven't come across such a strong pattern anywhere else related to synchronicities. Maybe like number synchronicities, like you said, everybody has a number. Um, that's another strong pattern, but but really the connection between owls and UFOs seems out of this world. Uh, so I don't, I'm not particularly focused on those symbols, but ultimately I don't think that matters because when you get down to what does it all mean and the, what is it doing in people's lives, 
the stories that I'm investigating, the stories that I've lived through are the same as the stories that you're talking about. They just use different symbols. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We wrote the same book from a different angel. Yeah. 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 Good. I may plug this back in. This is the recorder still going. Right? The, the listeners might. I'm going to plug this back in at the very end and just yeah, right. after the thing. So, Good. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. What you just heard was the show ending. Um, Sharon and I said our formal goodbye, and after that, we kept on talking. And I left it in because I thought it was really interesting. And you can hear, you can hear a sort of... Um, easiness in our voice and it was a different vibe and sound than the than the actual interview itself you can you can hear that both of us kind of uh, loosened up a little bit now before the interview began i told sharon that this listening audience was very sophisticated and we didn't need to waste any time on the surface aspects of, of these issues and this phenomena that we could dive right into the deepest waters and i feel that's exactly what we did and it felt great Again, I want to recommend Sharon's book. You know what I did? I actually recorded myself reading the entire table of contents, and it turned out to be 12 minutes long. <laughs> so I was going to tack that on here. I thought it was really interesting, all the little subtitles, but uh, it's kind of unreasonable to add 12 minutes to this interview of just me reading the, the table of contents. So all that said, if you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. And I will take this moment here at the end to formally thank Lauren Cutts for his intro and outro music. And I would also like to thank Andrea Lissette Villiers on the gong. <laughs>